Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey, you know you know who's crazy? No. You? That John Lithgow. No. Have you seen him? No, I haven't. The, the photos, I was just uh, cruising IMDb, and the photos of his, uh, I guess it's his latest thing, uh, Love is Strange. This was at the Tribeca Film Festival, I think. Mm. Man, he's got the full-on big white beard, and wow. I don't know what's going on. One eye is kind of... What happened Look, to John? He looks. He looks a little... He looks like he'd be a good shrink. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, John. It's been some some time. I haven't. Uh, what has he been in lately? I haven't seen him in ages. 
You know, there was that horrible movie that we talk about often. Years ago. Cliff, cliffhanger? No. Cliffhanger oh. with Sly? Oh, the other, the other terrible movie? Stop. Okay. Cliffhanger was great. <laughs> when he drops his girlfriend, who was on oh, what's hey. who was on that show, The Northern Exposure? Oh, did I ever have a crush on her? I don't know. Uh, Please. Yeah. Oh, you're, ta- you're talking about Raising Cain, that other terrible one. Ah, I love talking about Raising Cain. Wow, was that bad. Yes. Mm. You know, he was his whole storyline in L.A. Story was completely removed. Did you ever see any of that? No. Yeah, he was. He had this whole subplot in L.A. Story where he was this like big Hollywood producer, and he was all he was a friend of uh, Steve Martin's, and he was always like in and out. And he's the one who he was trying to teach him to skip when he was going somewhere so he didn't look like he was late he just looked like he was exercising or something and then he comes flying in in a jet pack in one scene and it's just like all these crazy scenes and wow i i think it must i must have seen them all like a deleted scenes or something somewhere and uh yeah but they cut the entire character of him throughout the entire film wow <laughs> it's like sorry john we're cutting everything that has you in it out <laughs> that's, that's crazy that's really... i had no idea no wonder he went on to make Raising Cane. <laughs> it's like, talk about something that's really just like kills your confidence. <laughs> God, that is, that is definitely, a, that's like, you know, you think it's like revenge casting. Yeah, I'm going to do something deep and dark and turns out to be not a good decision. <laughs> that's like sneaking a ding dong behind the car in the dark, like a crazy hobo. <laughs> everybody it's the next reel thank you so much for hanging out with us uh my name's pete wright that there is andy nelson yo and we spoil movies we spoil the heck out of them too so if you haven't seen whatever movie we're talking about tonight boom spoiled already uh so if you want to learn more about the movies that we've already spoiled uh for you you can head over to the next you can catch the blog stylings of the once and future king Steve Sarmento. Uh, you can join us in any of the uh, social platforms of choice if you want to chat with us. We'd love to chat and uh, check out all the uh, monthly new release reviews in addition to our weekly show, all the uh, new release reviews we do on the monthly show, The Film Board. And we just uh, we just did one. Uh, yeah, it was a good show. Was a, that was a good, good show. Good chat about uh, uh, old Cap. Cap, Captain America, and his mm-hmm. sidekick Binky. No, Monkers. No, <laughs> Blue Hair. What's his name? Bucky. Bucky. Bu- <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, Gonna be a night. Hey, you know what I want to talk about? I'm excited to, to hear what you have to say about this. I don't even know what to call it now. It seems like it's evolved yet again. Um, we're going to have to come up with some sort of fancy name because it's no longer Andy versus the people. Oh, no. Right, the mantle has uh, shifted. It is. It is in the process of shifting. Yeah, it's going to be a a steam robot versus the people. Steam robot versus the people. So, this week, uh, how would you characterize uh, this week? Um, This this was a this was a pretty good (laughs) week. I you know I'm gonna I'm gonna say this was a pretty good week because I how exactly do you get away with saying that? (laughs) Well, because I told him I'm like. 
this is one of those movies that has its dedicated fans, and people are going to know this movie backwards and forwards, and it's going to be a real challenge to make it past day one, uh, maybe day two. And, you know, we made it to uh, somewhere in day... It was was day day two, It was day two, but it was the very end of day two. All right. So... (laughs) All right, that's. I mean, that's fair. It's it's like you. Go I think after you would have to like, say though, when you get trounced on day two, uh, it's a trouncing. It wasn't a trouncing. It was. It it took a lot of guesses to get there. You know what's funny? It did take a lot of. That's the thing I liked the most is that there were lots of guesses. The thing that I find so funny about it is, I knew what movie it was, and I went through every single picture, and I couldn't place it until day six. <laughs> Even day five, the big toe picture, I could, I didn't picture. This was a movie, like, well, yeah, clearly not a movie. This either was not a, a movie for me. <laughs> uh, but this is this is one of those things that uh, I think uh, old steam robot. I think what is so great about it is that it went from spies, the Fritz Lang film last week, right. uh, to Pretty Woman, and I have a feeling. Uh, what? How would you call what, the week to come? Would this be a revenge posting? I think he's. I think he's going to be ready to get back at the people. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I, I, he definitely. Uh, he definitely has uh, uh, some wild and crazy options coming. This guy, up. encyclopedic uh, catalog, understanding of, of films uh, that are perfect. I think for the contest. Oh, I'm yes. so excited. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but yes, and it was it was Mrs. Harding. We we didn't yeah, say that. Yeah, congratulations say that. to Mrs. Harding who did figure it out on day two, and uh, she is now entered to win our pony prize, which does not include a pony. Excellent, Mrs. Harding. Welcome to the club. That's right. Got it on the maps of the Stars Homes photo. <laughs> There's so we've got money on a pink couch. Uh, the Hollywood sign. Um, like, you know, I mean, how do you, a guy wearing socks, I could see the big toe in the thing is kind of an iconic photo now. I mean, I get that. It's, but it's one of those movies that for people who know, it's like Love Actually. You yeah. know, it's like people who know those movies and watch them like all the time are going to know the images when they come up. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I get it. Like I have some of those movies. Like if you put, if you put something from a Monty Python movie up. Even in just a completely yeah. obscure image, I probably would be able to figure it out pretty quickly. Oh, Monty Python, Brazil, Blade Runner. Brazil. There you go. Yeah. Okay. I mean, okay. I'm not arguing with you. I don't I'm want to arguing with you. I'm, I'm not <laughs> arguing that with you. <laughs> oh, Andy. Hey, you know, I have an idea. Do we have anything else? Yeah. You know, um, Ben Lott, one of our listeners, left us a few nice comments about our Chronicle episode over on Facebook. So uh, I thought we should read those. He said, you guys did, really did a great job on this episode. I love the... Uh, and, <laughs> Why, thank you. <laughs> I love the analysis and totally agreed with almost all of it. My only <laughs> issue is that I did not like Dane DeHane or Dane DeHaan. What did we decide it was? Dane well, DeHane, I think. Yeah I, yeah, I think that's what you decided. That's what I decided. <laughs> <laughs> Dane, give us a call and clear, clear things up because we're confused. I know I was supposed to feel sympathy for him because of his situation, but I never felt like his character was ever someone I liked. As a result, the emotional impact of the end is a bit lost. I find myself rooting for Matt to kill him, whereas if they had made Andrew likable, the ending could have been really emotional. 
And uh, so I, I replied about that. And, uh, you know, he, he does agree that it's great seeing a supervillain origin and it's nice kind of getting that story. You know, and I think that it's just it really boils down to how connected you're able to get with that character. And uh, I think for me, I was able to connect with him quite a bit. I, I liked that place that he was coming from, a person kind of struggling with abuse, self-esteem, and how when he was given the, the tools of the super superpowers, basically, how that turned him uh, into a very dark way. And it's, uh, it, was, it was interesting. I, I really like that. But thank you so much for your comments, Ben, and uh, thank you for listening. Yeah, I... Yeah, I, I this made me think uh, we should do a series of supervillain origin stories. Are there that many? I don't know that there are, but we got to be able to squeeze two, three movies out of it, right? See, the thing is, it's most kind of, of the un, super, uh, super unbreakable, villain. maybe uh, is kind of. It's not well, really totally. But see, that's a, a, that's a superhero. Yeah, and see, that's the thing is, like every supervillain origin story is really also a superhero origin story. I know. We this we yes. Well, and you could sort of make that case about Chronicle too. No, absolutely. It's just yeah. in Chronicle, I think the supervillain stands out a little bit right. more. I don't think the superhero is quite as interesting a character. Well, this is your homework, is we need to figure that out. Like, there have got to be some other movies that are that have, that have give us that supervillain. And I'm sure it's one of those, or somebody's going to comment, and it will be so obvious that we missed it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. I, I'm curious about that. If you know of any great supervillain origin stories, let us know. There you go. Let's do trailers. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go first. Yeah. Let's get yours out of the way. Out just of the way? Scary. It's so uh, scary. It's today. not. It's, it is. Okay. It's scary. It's, Here's the thing. I don't know. I mean, you know. So this is a film that hit, uh, I think it hit, what did it hit, Toronto in uh, October sometime 2013. It hasn't been a uh, hit wide release yet. Uh, it comes from writers uh, Guillermo Amen- Amoedo and Eli Roth. Yes, that Eli Roth also directed it. Uh, it is called The Green Inferno. Now, you know me, right? I do. I'm not. I'm not as crazy about the horror. I was surprised that you picked this one. Right. So I am curious if you were to step back and try to rationalize why would Pete pick a movie like this? I'm curious what you would say. I think it's the uh, it's the the realism that Eli Roth went with and to (laughs) cast genuine tribal peoples in this film who've never been on film before okay that's really good that's a great guess it's not (laughs) accurate (laughs) so so this film is about uh first of all i think the plot is delicious oh i said it uh it is about a a group of of students that was that you know what pete that was tasteless (laughs) A group of student activists who who, uh, head from their uh, uh, posh homes in New York City, and they head to the Amazon to save a dying tribe of, uh, you know, of indigenous peoples. And, oh, oh, surprise, they get there, and it turns out the indigenous peoples don't need saving. They need food. Oh, and they're cannibals. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, you know that it, there is a subgenre of horror that I deeply love, and that is the uh, zombie. Subgenre. Oh yes, I'm a huge fan, and I think, as it turns out, uh, by extension, I think I'm just generally a fan of people eating other people. Wow! Because the cannibal subgenre is another one that I really find uh, fascinating. Fascinating. Right? Wow. No, no wonder your daughter is in the Hunger Games boot camp. <laughs> <laughs> kill, kill. No, no, no it's not. It's not <laughs> cannibal boot camp. Uh, you know, I was a, uh, I, I was a big fan of uh, uh, We Are What We Are. Uh, in the original, oh, yeah. uh, uh, right? That we, I That's already right. talked about. I realized that I have sort of a history of people eating people trailers and films. Uh, and this was, uh, you know, it's one that was sort of owned by uh, this sort of Italian films um, of the 80s and 90s. And the, the you know, there were uh, late 80s, uh, Cannibal Holocaust and... Um, um, uh, Natura Contro is is uh, was another one, and and so like these are kind of the films. Like I, those are on my shelf with, uh, y- you know, with like um, uh, Phantasm. You know, I get a lot of joy out of Phantasm too. Kind of <laughs> so so that's the that's kind of how I classify these. And so I got very excited when I saw that they were doing this um, this one. The trailer looks exceedingly creepy. Uh, and um, so I'm I'm excited to see it. It looks like it's going to hit um, the uh, U.S. Uh, of A. September 5th, 2014. I like that the rating it says rated R for aberrant violence and torture, <laughs> grisly, disturbing images, brief graphic nudity, sexual content, language, and some drug use. <laughs> but it's got aberrant violence. Aberrant. Wow. <laughs> And there, there is no uh, like in the trailer. There, there is no actual, uh, you know, eating of the flesh. They, they withhold a lot of that. But there is some absolute creepiness going on in yeah. this trailer. It's, it's creepy. Thoroughly creepy. Thoroughly, yeah. thoroughly creepy. All right. Yeah. That's me. Well, good. I, uh, I am actually interested in seeing that. Even though Eli Roth, I, I find him a bit arrogant and obnoxious, but. He has made some pretty good horror movies, so I give him that. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's that's kind of the thing, right? <laughs> that's the thing. That's yeah, it's, it's to be expected. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh well, man! Well, well, my trailer is yeah. a, a totally different direction. It's a, uh, it, you know, it looks like a, a nice little film. It's a drama western called A Night in Old Mexico that uh, features none other than Robert Duvall. And it looks really intriguing. It looks like a great little kind of character crime story about this old cowboy who lives in a, a, a house that he's basically getting kicked out of and forced to move into a trailer park, but he doesn't want to. And just in time, his uh, you know long-lost grandson comes to visit him. And they go off on a, kind of a, a road trip to Mexico and... Um, they pick up some hitchhikers who, you know, to get the plot moving forward, apparently are criminals. And these guys, you know, dump them off when they go to the bathroom, but without realizing that these guys left a bag in the back seat that's full of money. So now these guys are chasing them around in Mexico. They've got all sorts of, uh, you know, crime lords and everything after them. It looks, uh, it looks really interesting. And I like, I, I, there's something about Robert Duvall in anything 
that pretty much uh, pulls me in right away. There's he's just so uh, imminently watchable that I just I really uh, enjoy his presence. And when he's playing kind of a cowboy character, and when he plays his age uh, as like as kind of that old cantankerous man. I just, I really enjoy it. And I, I don't know. I, I think that there's something kind of quiet. This looks kind of more like kind of a quiet crime story. And I really love the look of everything about it. Um, Emilio Aragon is uh, directing it. And he is, I believe, a Spanish director who uh, is from a, a family of artists. And he's he's actually one of those jack-of-all-trades guys who's he's directed, he's uh, composed music for a whole bunch of his movies. He's acted in stuff. He's produced. He's writing. He's kind of that, you know, uh, jack of all trades sort of guy and is uh, really kind of spreading himself out around the world, making all sorts of uh, interesting movies, including this one. I think it looks great. I'm right with you on Robert Duvall. Anytime he plays the cantankerous old man, I'm excited. I, I, I mean, hell, I liked him when he did it in Days of Thunder. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. <laughs> I mean, that uh, it was um, uh, it, it was a treat to see him in this film. I think it's a this this is one of the movies. The first thing I thought of was, man, I'm gonna want to see that movie with my dad. Yeah, it does feel like one of those movies. Totally. Get together with with pops and watch yeah. something. Yeah, it just got it has that vibe to it. So. Absolutely. Good pick. Yeah. Did you say when it opened? You know, it doesn't have a release date yet. It played at uh, I think it had its U.S. premiere at South by Southwest last month. And then it's uh, it's played in Spain, and it open it's played in some film festivals in Spain. It opens in Spain in May, um, but it doesn't have a U.S. release date yet. But the trailer just came out recently, so I, I'm hoping that they'll get the uh, the release dates uh, figured out pretty soon. It, I'm guessing it will be uh, late summer, early fall. Oh, looks good. Yeah, All absolutely. Right. Okay, so our movie tonight. Uh, we're we're yeah okay. We did this listener's choice thing. And as always, it's a little bit of a risk to do these listener's choice things, I think. And yet, two out of two times, our listeners have come through. Uh, and so thank you very much. This time, uh, the pick comes from Alex Curran. And he chose The Matrix. 1999 sci-fi classic from uh, Andy and Lana Wachowski. Uh, starring uh, Keanu Reeves. And we had a chance to talk to um, to uh, Alex, as we are prone to do. Uh, and so here you go. Here's a little conversation we had with Alex about why he thought The Matrix uh, uh, would be ripe for us to talk about on this show. Yeah? Absolutely. Uh, it's our Listener's Choice show. And, and Alex... Alexander Curran, uh, you picked uh, The Matrix for us to listen to, or for, to, for us to talk about. Yes, I did. Which is uh, fantastic. So, so tell us a little bit about your, uh, you know, connection to movies and, and I don't know why you, why this movie is the one that you think that we should talk about. Okay, yeah, I, you know, I was I was real nervous when you got you guys picked my my name out of there. You know, I think I'd only had one entry in there, so I was kind of surprised that my name got picked. But you know, one a few movies popped right into my head, and The Matrix was one because I think I've heard you guys mention it once or twice and kind of passing of like uh, you mentioned The Matrix, and it's like, oh, you know, this, someday we'll talk about that. And it kind of sounded like you guys had some issues going there. <laughs> <laughs> Andy has issues always. 
I, I generally have issues. Um, no, I, not with the first movie. I don't have any issues at all with the first okay. movie. Yeah. Um, you know, and so for me, I, you know, it, it really kind of hit for me because, you know, I, I, the whole reason I kind of listen to your show is not, you know, I don't tend to go to movies and watch them really analytically and try and pick them apart or anything. You know, I, I'm strictly for entertainment value. You know, if I go in, if I come out of a movie and I, I say, hey, you know, I had a good time, then it was a good movie to me. Um, and so, you know, I kind of listen to shows like yours to kind of get into that kind of deeper look at movies. And so when I was trying to pick one, I was trying to, you know, you know, if I look at my, the movies on my shelf, you know, I'm saying, you know, okay, a lot of these might fall into the guilty pleasures, but nothing that's really too deep, you know? So the first few ones that came to mind, um, you know, probably my favorite movies, Die Hard, but mm. not. You know, if you guys picked that apart and it didn't end up in your top ten, you know, I might have to stop listening to the show. <laughs> <laughs> the stakes are very do... high. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, and I was thinking that, and, you know, The Matrix again came to mind because that time, you know, 1999, I just uh, graduated uh, from college. I was just gotten my first job, you know, doing video and things like that, but I was only working part-time, and I usually had my Fridays free. And so I kind of taken up just every Friday going to the movies and just picking something and seeing it. And um, when I went to see uh, The Matrix, I hadn't heard a lot about it. And, you know, maybe one trailer. And, you know, that, that day we weren't just inundated with all the everything about a movie. So, you know, when I went to see it and I, I, I watched this movie, I had no idea what was going on to start with. And it just, you know, all these different things about the movie just really clicked with me. You know, I had taken... A lot of Asian cinema classes, and so like you know the, the the martial arts and anime influences really clicked with me, and the sci-fi and the thriller aspect, you know, and it just everything just sort of culminated all together, and it really really clicked with me, and I really really enjoyed it, and and then um, then later on, as you know, you you start to delve in and learn about the things, and the DVD came out, and you got to see all the behind the scene features. It really fed into my you know kind of production background, and really delving into how all this stuff was made and it just kind of just for me to made a real impact as far as like um maybe not necessarily the story as a whole but just you know that time in my life and you know learning about filmmaking and it it's it really kind of hit on all those notes for me and and now where where do you stand with the the rest of i mean the other two movies and also i mean beyond that i mean this was i think one of the first times where even maybe before Marvel kind of got into this, uh, really kind of creating this expansive universe that ex that really extended beyond just the movies. But then they had all these short films, and they had the uh, the video game where you could have additional scenes. And I mean, there was just so much more to it. I mean, were you a fan of the whole series, and did you kind of absorb all of that, the whole world of the Matrix? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I was a fan of like um, they had the Animatrix, which was the series of short. Right. You know, different forms of that. And so I enjoyed getting to that. And I probably had the same issues that people had with the second and third movies where, I mean, honestly, I haven't seen them nearly as much as I've seen you know, the first one. And again, I, the same thing with the movie going experience. I would say I enjoyed them when I went to see them, even if I found them, you know, more confusing and uh, kind of funny that the, that was some, one of the things I liked about the first one is like, you know, for a good half hour 45 minutes you're in the same boat as neo is like they keep saying what is the matrix but they won't tell you and you have like you have no idea what's going on 
and you know until they lay it all out for you but then you know in the 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 second and third movies i kind of felt like it's like well they're not really adding anything that much more interesting to it uh, to me yeah that's a funny that's a funny bit i actually i i went back and i i already watched the movie and uh again i was so excited when you picked it uh and and started watching because this is one of the things i want to take andy to task when we talk about this show uh because uh you know when we because i i think I have less problem with the second and third movie in in the context of the expanded universe, and so I'm really excited to talk about this and what they did. And I think it's, uh, I I think the conversation is is going to end up growing a little bit than uh, beyond, uh, you know, beyond the first film. I hope it does. Sure. Yeah, and, and I'd have to watch the other two. I only got to rewatch the first one for this, but I'd have to watch the other two really to give a a. a better opinion of them now so do you feel like it held up for you, you say you 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 watched the film again uh recently did it did it hold up to your uh to your memory it did it did i, I mean it's some of the the things as we see uh, some of the cg work you can see and it's not not quite as sharp as as i would remember it but um you know for the most part when i when i watch it you know it's it's kind of one of those last movies i think where they really um had a nice blend of you know the practical effects versus the cg i mean it's like when you see people flipping through the air they were actually doing like you know the 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 martial arts the wire work and things like that so they actually had their bodies physically doing that thing and i think think that added a lot more realism to it whereas nowadays it would be a cg model of a person flying through the air and you know even to me that still looks you know rather fake um so I, I I really do think it still holds up, and and the blending of where there are CG elements versus what is you know live action um, holds up a lot better than some other movies. I uh, you know I I agree. I can't wait to talk about this film. I think it's been I think it's a great pick, and and uh, so appreciate you uh, throwing this into the mix. It's about time, yeah. Andy. Yeah, I, <laughs> no, I haven't watched it in a while, and I, I'm excited to go back and, and rewatch it. And I am actually uh, interested in going back and revisiting the series uh, at another time just to kind of look at it again now farther away from it. My recollection is I had a lot more problems with the second one, not as many with the third one, but I am kind of curious to revisit it. I mean, it, it is difficult to watch the first one without those other ones in mind since you already kind of know where things are going you can't recapture that you know that kind of the mystery that was there when i first saw it but you know you you know if you just enjoy it for what it is i think i think you'll you know have a good time with it. sure <laughs> there should be that should be a disclaimer on the film <laughs> on the box let's try to forget what you know yeah that's right that's right <laughs> well, we sure appreciate you uh, appreciate you doing this, and I hope our our conversation uh, holds up to your expectation of the film. I'm sure if it doesn't, uh, it's going to be Andy's fault. But at least it at least it won't uh, lose us a listener like uh, <laughs> like Die Hard would have. Die Hard. <laughs> Although I have a feeling Die Hard would end up pretty high on our list because that's that's a pretty high on my list. Of I, I worry that that I would not be able to watch Die Hard with a with a keen enough eye. I love that film so so much. I know it is good. That's good. To, good to know it'll end up higher higher ranked. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. My Absolutely. wife doesn't know this, but in my head, our bedroom is actually called Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> I'll never tell her that, but 
That's the truth. Uh, Alexander Kerr, thank you so much for uh, for listening to the show. Thanks so much for sitting down with us and talking a, a little bit about the uh, about the Matrix. And uh, uh, here we go. We're gonna go ahead and uh, we're gonna we're gonna find out what the Matrix is. Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? What is happening to me? The answer is out there, Neo. It's the question that drives us. What is the Matrix? The Matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? They're watching you, Neo. Human beings are a disease. You are a cancer of this planet. And we are the cure. Get me the hell out of here! Welcome to the real world. So you're here to save the world. So what do you need? Guns. Lots of guns. Has ever done anything like this. That's why it's going to work. Buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy. Because Kansas is going bye bye. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. 1999, this film. Can you believe this? this flick is 15 years old? Yeah, you know, it just turned 15 a couple weeks ago. March yeah. 30, March 31st is when it came out. So, yeah. Happy birthday, Matrix. Happy birthday, Matrix. 15 years old. Holy cow. Yeah. It held up amazingly well. It really held up. Everything about it still just really is rock solid. And it amazed me watching it again, just looking at all the all the detail, all the effects, all the stunt work. Um, but, but I think what most held or just was rock solid still is the story. Like all the way through, I feel as if these are two writers who had come up with a concept and they found the perfect way to tell it and they told it. And, and I think this is one of the things that I, you know, I inevitably we're going to talk about the sequels at some point, but this is one thing that I, I feel um, came about with the sequels, where I think this first one is really a perfect film by itself. And if they never made any more, I think uh, it would have been just rock solid and and just really just all around one of the great sci-fi films. The fact that the second and third one ended up getting made, I don't think diminished the first one at all. I think the first one really stands up um, very solidly, like I just said. But... Um, they took all the ideas and they just kind of kept building on it and and the ideas and the effects and the stunts and and just everything and it got a lot more confusing and it got a lot more dense and i still find it all really fascinating um the entire world of all this with zion and the architect and everything else that comes along um I, 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 but it is a little more muddled, and I do find it, uh, it's very ambitious, but I do find a little more to wade through going through the second and third films. But this film 
watching it again, it just was like, man, this is why uh, it just felt so fresh and original. And this is why everybody wanted to see those sequels, because this one was so stinking good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was. And I remember being... (laughs) I do. I remember being bowled over by this film. I mean, I was bowled over. And I was bowled over particularly by the the opening sequence, right? I mean, you get the the conversation between uh, uh you know, between Trinity and Cypher and uh as you as you close in and and move through the matrix title code, you know, into the into the the font, the computer font, which mm-hmm. I thought that blew me away. Like uh, uh, that was cool in 1999 and then we go into the uh, captain. Your men are already dead, and uh, <laughs> and we see Trinity in our first use of bullet time, um, it, which I, I mean, I I really could have gone home after that <laughs> sequence. Like that yeah. was that was worth the the price of admission uh, to me for a film like this. And then we get, we're introduced to this uh, uh, to this wonderful mystery. Uh, well, I should say we, the, this wonderful mystery becomes resolved for us. This mystery that they had so brilliantly marketed to us over the the previous um, you know uh, several months uh, is resolved over the course of the first act or two, and we we get a sense of of kind of what the matrix is. And I felt. Um, which which happens rarely i felt rewarded by the resolution of it i didn't find that it it was um that it was something that that was kind of front loaded that ended up being not as as worthwhile a uh, 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 reveal uh, mm-hmm. based on the market like it was earned resolution and and i thought that was very powerful i love the the just sort of mashup of um you know gnosticism and buddhism and uh you know and then playing with these uh religious motifs in uh, you know turning this sort of um this sort of buddhist appreciation of wisdom on its ear by making everybody an enemy and firing just hellacious amounts of uh firearms and killing many 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 people uh which i I find enormously and subversively entertaining yeah, uh, they're all just batteries after all. Right, right, ex- exactly. And so this this whole concept, I, I think, is I think what they did to mash up all these concepts and give people so much to chew on, I think, is really fascinating. On this viewing, I have to say, like, I found myself sort of slapping my head uh, a number of times. You know, there there are little things that I I feel like stick out at me. You know, um, uh, this. The, the number of just it feels like this film was a little bit made for one liners and one liners coming from, uh, you know, Trinity are OK coming from uh, Cypher are great coming from Morpheus or fine, though few uh, coming from Agent Smith are fantastic coming from Keanu Reeves uh, are goofy. And I find I find I just had a harder time sticking with old Neo uh, on this viewing than I ever had in the past. Past. Um, and and I think I was distracted by uh, so much of the uh, of the visual hoopla in this film, which was brilliant, and the premise up front, which was brilliant. That by the time it it hits to some of his more important sequences, um, it 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 allowed uh, some of the production choices to to you know become a little bit more transparent and obvious uh, to me. I had a harder time with it. Interesting. Interesting. I, you know, 
I, I think I must be one of those people who just I, I just don't have a problem with Keanu. And, you know, I don't have a problem with Kevin Costner either. So maybe maybe I'm good with those uh, uh, those <laughs> two by fours, as you call them. Uh, but um, thanks for tossing that back, by the way, <laughs> as you call them. <laughs> You call them. <laughs> no, I actually really enjoy Keanu in this, and I I think that he um, plays this role well, and I I do enjoy him uh, as this person, kind of seeking something more, but not knowing what it is. When he's just Thomas A. Anderson in the beginning, and he's just lost. I I enjoy that vibe that he's putting out, where he just he can't quite figure out why things just don't seem to fit right, and he just always looks uncomfortable and uh just i, I don't know i i enjoy all of that and then once he um once he takes the pill and he you know goes into the real world and all of that and uh becomes part of this uh this squad that's kind of going in and out of the matrix to uh to talk to the oracle and try to figure out who's the if he's the one or not and all that sort of stuff i just i like that i like i like the toughness that he conveys I, I i guess i don't have a problem with like the one-liners and stuff i mean i i don't think that uh i i don't know i, I it doesn't feel nothing feels that forced to me and i i think that to me he still reeks cool when i watch this film hmm reeks cool he it's maybe it's the the, the duster i don't know but he he it must be the duster <laughs> i know when i wear my duster i look that <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, um, I mean, I'll, I'll give it to you. I only because I have 15 years of great memories of this film, and it's only as always we ruin the experience for me when I have to actually look at a film sort of critically. When I, I notice the things that have frustrated me in viewings of other films that I have great memories of, and um, and and this one, I don't know who to blame it on. I because some of the stuff that that he gets away with in this film, I think worked just fine. You know, I know kung fu. Uh, you know, I, I re- that's one of my favorite sequences. The montage training sequence is one of my favorite sequences in the film. Um, the, the test sequence, him and Morpheus on the Kung Fu floor. I love watching, you know, watching the two of them go at it. Uh-huh. Uh, I find that really a rewarding sequence. Um, but there are other sequences. The sequence where he's on the phone and and it's it's raining outside. And I can't see now. I, I have the script in front of me. I'm not on the right page. Uh, but he, you know, Trinity calls him and says, you know, you got to meet us under the bridge. And he says something dramatic. And then thunder in the background. These foley sounds of the and the the film is littered with those sorts of dramatic kind of noir stingers that I I think detract from from the film for me. I notice those so often that uh and and i find them really distracting and and sort of trite at this point now maybe that's because i've seen 15 years of films since then that have done it poorly and now i'm sort of exhausted i totally get that uh but it just doesn't doesn't hold up it feels a little bit from a production standpoint it feels a little bit dated which i think is ironic given how well i feel like the 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 effects themselves both the practical and the special effects uh actually do hold up uh it it's a it's you know inevitably because it was the first uh to jump into this this whole bullet time um experience i mean and really it's not the first but it's it's the first to do it as much as it did and to do it in, in you know in such great effect my recollection is that 
the abysmal Lost in Space movie actually used it first, um, which was what ninety seven, I think ninety six or seven. Uh, yeah, I, I'm almost sure of that. Nineteen ninety eight. Ninety-eight. Okay, yeah. ninety-eight. So it came out just the year before, but that's that was my first, uh, the first time I had seen Bullet Time, and I believe yeah, that, that was their used... hyperdrive effect, right? right exactly. Was... Right, like when they flew through the sun. Right. And every yeah, it was nonsense. But yeah, that was the whole thing in that film. How it, it they used Bullet Time, and I think it had been used in a few commercials as people were trying to get a sense as to how do you use this thing. Um, but I don't think anybody had used it to the. Uh, the great effect that they were using it in the matrix where it wasn't just a cool thing to use, but it actually kind of fit in to the story as these characters um, start learning how to manipulate this space that they're in this, this construct that they're in and move at uh, greater speeds and, you know, climb walls and jump uh, ridiculous distances and all that sort of stuff. And they eventually fly. That's um, that's what I think the bullet time uh, was really effective at is it, it was such kind of like an integrated part of the plot and I, I really enjoy that. But the danger of being kind of the first where you're doing it is like because they they really emphasize it every time they're using it. It you know creates those great slow mo moves around the actors as they're doing like the the jump like as Neo and Agent Smith jump at each other in the subway and are shooting at each other and trying to punch each other and, and they're grabbing each other and spinning and falling to the floor all in bullet time as it's spinning around. It, it, it kind of does feel a little repetitive as it kind of keeps happening time after time after time as we keep seeing this bullet time thing. And, it, you know, it does bring me back to uh, the very first Star Trek film, Star Trek, the motion picture, uh, which also felt very much like these are our effects. We need to make sure we are doing it as as uh, effectively and slowly as possible, so every everybody can enjoy them as, as as in the fullest way, in the in the fullest extent. And that film now, I I cannot make it through that film. I think it is one of the most tedious films to watch in uh, in the Star Trek films. And uh, you know, it, but it does feel kind of like maybe this is a little akin to that, where it's you're, like now uh, tell me you're talking about the 1979, right? Star exactly. Trek, the very right. first, okay, yeah, all right. the, the, the first picture. cinematic right. one. All right, right, and yep. because they really lingered on every effect, like the 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 shots of the Enterprise leaving the space dock. I mean, it felt like that went on for 15 minutes, you know? I think it it's actually what, does go on for 15 minutes. It probably does go on for 15 minutes. And, and that's kind of the the thing. It's like they were really emphasizing the effects because they wanted people to enjoy it and feel that presence. That's what, in a way, that's kind of what the Matrix falls into. It's a trap now. And it's only a trap because of time, the passage of time. Go, jumping back to 99... It, we weren't bothered by that. But now, 15 years later, we notice it so much more because we have seen it a million times in a million different ways. And we've seen it improve so much more over those 15 years. Truly. And, and you know, I would say I, this is one of those sequences that doesn't bother me, or one of these the, the these tricks that doesn't bother me in The Matrix at all. I'm still fascinated by it every time it occurs. And I think it's because they do a good job of, of changing it up a little bit. You know, where it starts, we have Trinity, and it goes around her. We do have... Uh, neo on the roof and we have the 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 you know once we bring two people into it as you 
as you mentioned, Agent Smith and Neo are fighting in the subway. There's another use of it, and then I, you know, finally we have one where it's it's we're buzzing along the floor in the uh, rain-soaked or the the sprinkler-soaked office as Morpheus is about to jump out of the helicopter, and and it allows us to zero in on the point of impact on his calf as he's hit by a, a bullet, and that that's one that I find enormously impactful because it, first of all, you can't even tell that it's really the bullet time trope um, until you get there and realize that we're also using this crazy, you know, high frame rate, you know, slow motion to close in on this and really freeze that water in a way that is is unworldly. Um, I find that just really satisfying even to this day. Yeah. And and the the fact that they are doing this incredible, um, you know, bullet time sequence with these cameras and then looking around that there is you know they're using an old school like four-story mat of uh painting of of the cityscape behind the helicopter i find that just really delicious that's a that's a it it this is a a movie that really was kind of right at that um at, at that uh, the the shift between uh, you know practical and and computer effects and and I think the Wachowskis at this point were doing some really really good practical work. Um, so well, and and I think a lot of that came from the budget. This was their second film, and they intended this to be their first film, but no one would give them the money. They're like, well, come on. I mean, this is it's a great script, but. As first-time filmmakers, we can't give you $100 million to go out and make this. And so they went back and they did Bound for $6 million, which is a, a fantastic film. Uh, great little kind of low-budget film that came out uh, that got them a lot of acclaim. It gave the the studio a little more confidence that they could trust them to do this. They still weren't sure about how they're going to pull all these effects off, but these guys really presented themselves well. And they knew, like, they were... They're, I th- think they were from the world of comics, and they really had a a sense of the storyboard, and they they could draw out like everything. They worked with their storyboard artist, and the three of them would kind of collaborate and and figure out basically every shot. And when you look at the storyboard and you look at the 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 finished frame, it's like they had it in their heads exactly how they wanted it got it on the paper with the storyboard artist, and then they shot it exactly that way. They were able to make this movie. It was $65 million that they ended up uh, making it for, so it was definitely a big budget, but they were really smart about how they used their money. Things like the mats, things like there's a scene when when uh, Morpheus brings uh, Neo back into the Matrix so he can go meet the Oracle, and while they're driving, all of the driving scenes, instead of going out and filming on the streets, I mean, it's kind of twofold. I'm sure it was to save some money, but also um, they wanted to give it a slightly off look. And so all of the, the driving stuff is shot with rear screen projection because they wanted it to feel slightly artificial. Now that Neo, for the first time, is back in the in the matrix looking at it now as somebody who had believed it to be real now looking at it as an artifice and by doing it as a rear screen and saving money that way you're able to kind of create that and lend itself to creating a more interesting looking film you know that's actually one i didn't pick up i did not know that uh uh, the rear screen projection but i never actually thought about it yeah but you're you're absolutely right Yeah. yeah oh you're right that that's that's a great pick. Great yeah, catch. Just, yeah. Okay. Uh, so 
let's uh, tell me how important or, or let's let's look at it this way. When you think back on the film, how often do you find yourself trying to uh, unravel the the meaning of it and the symbolism of it? Is that important for you? I don't think that this one is that complicated. Like I feel this one is fairly easy to to grasp. Are you, you saying know, the, that in the, in in uh, contrast to the other two? Yes, yes, very really? specifically. Yeah, the well, the other two I think get so um, much more specific about defining just everything to the point where it's just like it becomes much more complicated. It feels this one I always felt was very clear, and I I never felt like it was that confusing. You've got the matrix this artificial world that is basically being fed into humans brains that are all instead of actually living in that world are all basically batteries for these uh these uh you know the the sentience and the the robotic uh creatures that are essentially running earth now right well i i mean i i get that much <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking back to the uh, to the the hue and cry about the the symbolism in this film, and I I uh, I'm with yeah. you on that same point. Like I I feel like this is a film that actually wears its symbols right on its sleeve, um, and and I I also did not I did not feel like I was um, I I was particularly psychologically saddled with the need to to you know determine every you know, you know pick pick up at what everything means mostly because i think the wachowskis are pretty darn clear um you know uh, that the you know neo means the one and it's means new in latin and it is the rebirth and like i mean you, you see what i'm saying like they, they make pretty clear what their intention is and um uh so i that's that's what i was getting at there like how yeah. how important was that to you right in, and even in, like trinity you yeah. know i mean there's there's a lot of those sorts of of references all through the film that yeah i mean i, I to me that's the fun part of the film that's the that's the the interesting element that's added to this sci-fi world that makes it a really unique watch and and a fun one uh, to go back and look at. I, I mean, I agree. I, I guess that's what I was was getting at. Did you see yeah, this yeah, also yeah. as a mystery that needed to be un uh, needed to be sort of unraveled to I, get I any sort of satisfaction out of it? Because there were people who did. No, yeah, absolutely. And and there there always will be uh, things that you can go back and look at and and pull apart meticulously piece by piece and look at everything from you know the Alice in Wonderland references to the. Um, what is it? Sim- simulacra and simulation. Yeah, simulacra and simulation, right? And, the, and yeah, and you have biblical references. You've got you know, there's anime things in there. There's just there's things that they pull from just everything that that essentially influences it. And you can find all those influences all through the film. And you can kind of look at and find this interpretation of the story. To me, those are elements that make it a more exciting sci-fi. Uh, uh, tale um i i you know i really enjoy the film for what it is i think that that's a very interesting element to it you know the the addition to zion i mean zion's only mentioned in the first one but you get to go to zion in the 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 next ones 
And just seeing how all that comes together, I think is really fascinating. I don't think that it's something that you have to dwell on in order to make it an enjoyable film. I think it's it's definitely additions to it that just give it more meaning and more layers to talk about. And, you know, just like True Romance, this is the sort of film that it's great to go sit down and have a piece of pie and talk about afterward because it is throwing all those things at you and it's fun to kind of absorb them and analyze them. But I don't think that it's going to change the meaning of the film. Like for me, it never has. Um, but I do enjoy what they're just how they're playing with all those ideas. Well, how they're playing with the ideas, I can see that, and how just how thorough uh, they are with these little Easter eggs um, that you find. This is one of those films that is just really ripe with those little Easter eggs. Uh, and if you're and and what I what I find really interesting is you know when you're sitting with someone who's watching the film who's educated in a particular theology, for example, uh, you know, watch this movie with a minister. Uh, because boy, they can p- pull out details, uh, that <laughs> I miss every time. Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, and I think it's interesting that the Wachowskis understand that and they actually on the, on the Blu-ray, I think I had mentioned, um, a, a couple weeks ago, how when they, um, release this, they, they're very red, uh, reticent to talk about it because they feel like if they give people their interpretation of what everything means, it it makes other people feel like, oh, okay, and then those other people shut up and they don't say anything because, well, those are the filmmakers. I'm going to take them at their word because they're the ones who made it. But so instead of doing a commentary on the film, they actually had um, philosophers who loved the film talk about it, and then on the other track they had uh, critics who didn't like the film talk about it. And so you can get different perspectives from different groups of people about what's working, what's not working, and and really kind of hear all the different uh, people coming at it from different angles and then take out of that what you uh, what you want. I love it. And I think that's a great is, idea. Well, and I think that's what's great about a film like this is yeah. that it can be something that is just a very superficial, enjoyable science fiction film uh, that you can watch, like kind of like I was alluding to earlier. It's just like, yeah, it's this whole thing about the batteries and the robots and all that sort of thing. But you can kind of dig deeper and have some pie and chat about, you know, all this stuff about, you know, Trinity and, and, and Neo and the rebirth and Christianity and Jesus. And there's so many different things that you can start throwing out there, out there and have a really interesting conversation. I, I enjoy that aspect of this as a film that you can dig in and and come up with other ideas, and it it makes it uh, a film that for me is really enjoyable to watch and rewatch. And I you know I think this is one of those films that benefits when you watch it again, when you can actually go and talk about it with someone afterward, because I think there are a lot of things to talk about with this film. Okay. All right. So let's let's talk. Well, that's what I'm getting. I, you know, I I would I, I would love to hear it, and I because it, you know again I, I I there's a lot I love about this movie, and I, I and I love the Easter egg sort of detail uh, of it, um, and I have yet in in 15 years to have any sort of a, a read of this film uh, or, or learn any more of those sort of Easter eggs that has changed the way I think about the film, um, and. 
you know, I even would say that about a film like, you know, I, I had a new read on, on Troll Hunter after talking about it. <laughs> that was a, a vastly uh, less complex film. Um, but again, I mean, t- for me, the, the film wears enough of its symbolism on its sleeve that that I, I'm, I feel like I'm able to enjoy it uh, on the surface and, and, uh, and at depth at the same time. Like, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't find myself transformed. Well, no, and I think that 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 may be one of the faults of uh, when the filmmakers do wear the ideas on their sleeve uh, in a film like this. It, it, you know, it's all right there. It's easy to kind of grasp those things, the neo, the, the names, the, the places, the, the references. It's easy to grasp all that and see where they're coming from and, and what they're trying to do with it. I don't think it's a film that... Uh, I've never heard anybody talking about that watching this film hitting on all those points and 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 having a new understanding of something, you know, I I don't I've never heard that, but I do enjoy just just hearing how people can pull those different uh those elements out and kind of just come up with things. And that's I I enjoy that aspect of this film is that it it's it's a film that Yes, it's all there, but the way that they're blending Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, uh, you know, the, uh, it's the, a, yeah, it's the, a it's a philosophical mashup. Yeah, it, it, it for sure the, cy- the cyberpunkness of all of that sort of stuff, the anime feel, the I mean, throwing in the bullet time and everything, you just throw all that stuff in there, and and uh, you know, what kind of mashups can you create? And you know, it's not a film that I think um, makes me change the way I'm going to think about the universe, even though that's kind of what it's uh, alluding to. But I certainly walk out of this as a sci-fi film having more interesting conversations than, you know, Man of Steel or some other, you know, big sci-fi film that may come out. (laughs) That's probably not a good example, but, you know, I find this, I, I enjoy that I, I guess I just don't care that they're wearing all that on the sleeve of the, of the films. I feel like the Wachowskis well, are very ambitious filmmakers, and they like to just get it all in there. I mean, Cloud Atlas, come on. I mean, they really just cram so much stuff in there that that makes it a really fun watch and something that gives you uh, gives you all this stuff that you can then just kind of take out and just kind of look at again piece by piece. Well, I think it celebrates all of the things we love to um, we love to crank out uh, when we talk about this sort of cyberpunk aesthetic, right? I mean, it's uh, it, you know this idea that there is a world in a world, uh, this idea that we are uh, you know we're ultimately asleep and unaware, and that you know our real growth comes out of of conquering our own sense of awareness of of what is around us. I, I think that is uh, you know it celebrates all of these concepts at at once and and that makes these this sort of you know two plus hours uh, of a you know that's what makes it the experience and that's what what allows us to think about it. I mean for me the the uh, the initial conceit of um, you know of the batteries is enough for me I mean that that is something that that was mind-blowing um, you know walking out of the theater that night that was the thing I wanted to to, to really think about um, this whole idea that you know there's there's somebody watching me uh, and that I'm not aware of that uh, you know of that 
stalking. Uh, I, I found that fascinating. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like we could, we could certainly, uh, circular logic this to death, but, uh, but, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the production, shall we? Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, the visual effects in particular, we've already talked a little bit about the, um, um, the, uh, bullet time. Do you have more to say about Mr. Gata, uh, Gata's work in that arena? I, you know, I don't think so. I, just, I, I, I really find bullet time a fascinating technique and I, I really do enjoy the way that uh, that camera technique of having a very large number of cameras essentially on a rig around the action that you're trying to capture. I enjoy uh, the way that it has evolved and seeing it uh, now when you see it like at a you know a football game or something where you're you know the 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 you know the sides change and you've got the bullet time zip around the stadium to you know get everything set up as the other team uh, as the as the offense comes out it's it's just <laughs> like right. it's like wow that's just a crazy use of bullet time but it's kind of fun to see i it's it's always fun to kind of see what they're coming up with uh in regards to bullet time but i i, I really enjoy that technique um looking at some of the behind the scenes i can only imagine how complex it is to try to figure it out i mean I mean, it's something that you don't think about, but I mean, in order to have as many cameras as they do filming a scene uh, that actually works, they have to, it, I mean, every camera has to be set up with laser precision, literally, where they've got the, you know, the camera set up, they've got a laser pointer on it, and they have to hit the mark exactly so that when the, they put all the shots together, it's fluid. Otherwise, if a camera is slightly off, it's going to all of a sudden have a little jump in it or a, it'll feel like a bump. And so it's really a very complex process. And I would love to be on a set with where they're filming in bullet time and just really get a sense as to how, how they work all of that. It's, it's, it's an amazing process. It, it is an amazing process. And I think the thing that, that, uh, you know, today is easier uh, thanks to just the raw processing power but what we can't underscore enough is that in 1999 the idea of taking these individual frames and interpolating the space between them was a significant challenge yeah uh, being able to make that a smooth move between frames that on these cameras that are you know uh, i mean what would you say nine inches a foot apart yeah about. Um, you know they've got 120 cameras that are in this you know in in a circle that are about a foot apart that's a very large space uh to have to go through and and you know make that a single uh a single smooth motion is akin i think to you know practically creating the image uh, you know creating the uh, the effect from scratch with like a cg model um you know today i think that would be the alternative approach today <laughs> maybe just easier to take the 3d version of neo um and and in in some cases, I think they they did that in later films rather than than set up the complex bullet time. They just you know they can they can create that in different ways now. Well, and now I mean they have a new technique, and I I'm gonna have to dig around and see if I can find a link for it. Um, I've only seen it applied to to uh, tennis actually. It's and it may be one of those te camera techniques that I, I honestly don't know how you could really 
effectively use it in a film, but it does seem like a really interesting tool that you could use in sports. This tennis match, they filmed it, and I can't remember how many cameras that they had, but and, and this is interesting because it actually ties into how, like, going back to something like Cloverfield, how they were able to, with that, you know, the the shaky sort of camera that you're using by the first-person camera, how they're able to kind of lock the landscape in, this green screen landscape, and essentially create a virtual, like, the virtual background and the virtual city behind you. That's essentially what they're doing now. And this this tennis match, what they do is they have all these cameras filming the game and then if they want to stop the the people playing and say oh look let's 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 go back behind him now and see um where his foot was when he stepped was he out of bounds because they're filming in so different so many different cameras they can do exactly what that bullet time is and they they are now able to very easily interpolate okay with all these different cameras let's move over to this side and they can basically almost create a camera position, they can put it anywhere in that bubble of space around that tennis game where they can like, okay, let's move the camera so it's right behind the tennis ball and see uh, how his racket hits it. And it's it's really interesting the way that they're able to analyze elements within these frames now and basically create this three-dimensional world where they can interpolate anything within that space now. Once they have modeled the space. Once they have modeled the space, exactly. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's really, really interesting stuff, the way that it kind of keeps expanding and uh, improving. Um, you, once you move past the bullet time, uh, how do you feel the rest of the effects uh, stand up? You know, we've got, we've got the creature effects. We've got essentially the robot, you know, the sentinels. We've got the ships. We've got the, the general production um, vision. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it boils down to the the two worlds. I think the the effects in the real world, I think, are just great sci-fi effects. Everything from the the uh, battery tanks where all the people are, which I, in a, like like you said, I mean, that when the first time I saw that, it just like blew my mind that this is where Neo has been the whole time. Um, I I think all of that stuff is amazing. I enjoy the ships. I enjoy the the sentinels. All of that stuff works really well. I enjoy that sci-fi world. In The Matrix, I think the other thing that uh, is really key to talk about is actually the stunt work. Yes. The wire work that they do with, uh, with uh, um, what's his name? Legendary Yuan uh. <laughs> Wu-Ping. Yes, that's the one. Yes, Yuan Wu-Ping. Um, just watching the stunt work, I mean, it paired with all of the uh, the uh, the bullet time, even not the bullet time, it's just so amazing to watch the wire work that these people do. It, it is uh, amazing, and I think it's you know I we talked about like uh, so many things in that one last little phrase. The the first is the the sort of homage to great sci-fi. Of, uh, sort of production design that has come before it right i mean the the geiger-esque um sort of look of the of the pods you know of the you know the battery pods and and the um you know very much the sort of um sci-fi militaristic look of the ships and and um you know the um the just sort of old, broken down, uh, hodgepodge, kludge together junk pile of the Nebuchadnezzar and and soon to be the other ships that are introduced in the later, uh, later films. 
I think make such a, a perfect um, uh, contrast to what we see in the real world. And I, I, uh, uh, I, I love this idea. I think it further goes to cement the um, why they cre- the, the uh, machines created the matrix the way they did, because the machines, you know, it just highlights that the machines don't need any artifice. Uh, that everything is just 100% functional and cleanliness and order is artifice. Uh, and, and so that, that to me is one of those, those little cultural messages that I really resonate with. Um, the, uh, you know, but the, the stunt work in particular, when you look at, at how the, the, this film ends up being such a great genre mashup, uh, you know, from the, um, sort of the, you know, Kung Fu flicks, um, that, we love so much uh, to inject a science fiction or a cyber a cyberpunk film with this this wonderful sort of kung fu vibe. I think was such a great choice. Well, and it, you know, it, it it strikes me that they uh, interestingly, it, it feels like they went after that same sort of pattern that Star Wars did so effectively, using kind of uh, the sword fighting as kind of the. Uh, almost like that samurai feel that you have with the lightsabers and and all the sword work that they do in all those films in creating that uh, as a new tech, uh, kind of a a new cool technique in that sci-fi world. This sci-fi world um, was able to use just all the cool Kung Fu stuff because of the way that um, it looks, but because the way they're able to learn and adapt and expand upon it once they have these skills and they go back into the matrix, it makes it um, uh, just, I, I mean, it's just amazing to watch. And I think it works really well in the context of this this particular sci-fi world. You know, I love that you bring up Star Wars. I actually had a thought similar to that, and, and it, mostly it, it comes in the contrast of the original trilogy and the, the uh, prequels, uh, where you get the feeling that they thought, wow, this, this was a neat genre mashup. We're going to do just a lot more of it. Uh, and it ends up being, you know, ends up losing some of the magic, I think, in, in you know, particularly in the first one. And well, in- and I think also it's all those are all CG people float. You know, right, I, I don't right. think there's nearly as much wire work in that. I think I mean you you see uh, Qui Gon Jinn and and Obi Wan. I mean when they're flipping around and doing all that stuff, it's yeah. little CG, CG versions of them. Right, right. The video game uh, versions of them. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I absolutely agree with that, and I think that's one of the things that you know when I mentioned that the the uh, you know my impression of the Wachowskis at this point was you know their their reliance on practical effects in addition to um, to special effects or CG effects this is this is what I mean like this is I think um, having watching the wire work grounds the film yeah do you know what I'm saying it it gives you that sense of of reality not surreality uh, even in a in a world that they did a, a really effective job of building as as surreal yeah well it's because it's it, it becomes so tangible these fights are not just these over-the-top surreal sci-fi fights like if you look at a bad example um i think uh i don't know if you saw it but wanted that came out uh six years ago uh that this is Tamura, the angelina jolie yeah right right um that was a movie that i think created this kind of I don't know. It's hard to describe that 
that sci-fi world, but it was like where these people had these strange powers, but they were still kind of in regular time, but they could like bend how bullets moved and stuff like that. That didn't feel tangible. It didn't feel logical. This feels tangible. It feels logical. All of the fights that they have in this film all feel like these actors are actually present. And that's largely because these actors were present. I mean, they almost never had stunt people. I mean, they were all doing their own stunts. They were all doing their own fights. And I think it really shows uh, in just the fact that it feels so present. Everything about it feels very tangible. Well, and and to your point, that becomes one of the anchors uh, that drags the next two films down. Yes. As soon as you introduce 200 Agent Smiths oh. and put fake Neo fighting them with a telephone pole, yep. um, you know, that is is when we start to lose track of, uh, to lose the thread. Absolutely. That's that's what starts feeling like now I'm just watching a video game yep. and I don't get the controller. <laughs> yeah, right. right. And it's very hard to watch. That's, that is one of the the hardest moments to get through in uh, this trilogy. And I think that's exactly why, because it just, they take out anything tangible and real, just like you said. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, a great point. Um, okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the people. Shall we? Yes. Uh, the people of the film, um, this is uh, obviously the Wachowskis, um, Andy, nay, Larry, Wachowski at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. We've talked a little bit about their background in comics. We uh, that they they brought a, a, just a, a magical uh, story. And and uh, you know my take is that there are some parts in this film that are just downright goofy. I as we talk about it, I've been blaming a lot of it on on Keanu. I think I they deserve some of the the blame there too. Um, there's some there's just some goofiness that doesn't fit the world for me but generally i find this film is one of the things i think they do exceedingly well is the world building part up front uh and uh, you know i think they're the real uh art of the first act of this film is in delivering a world in which i could believe that the matrix exists so fully uh, it is an extremely tight um, uh, production in that light for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think they're they're very visual storytellers. They know how to create their worlds for the good and bad of their films. I think uh, Bound is fantastic. I think this is fantastic. I think the second and third Matrix films have elements that work. I, I feel like they're they're a little messy. But, I mean, I am curious to actually, after watching this, I really actually do want to go watch them right now and, and just kind of finish the story. Um, Speed Racer, I really hated that. I couldn't I know, stand I, it. I, I know it has its fans, but I don't know what those people enjoy about it because yeah. I had such a hard time getting through that film. It was it just, heartbreaking. It never ended. It's it just went on forever. Yeah. Um, Cloud Atlas, I, you know, we've talked about that on the show. I think it's a, an interestingly divisive film. I, I really enjoy it, and I find it very... Uh, it's an ambitious mess is what I've always said. And I think you and Chad, when we talked about it, had a lot more problems with it. It's a mess of ambition. It is a mess of ambition. And then they have uh, Jupiter Ascending coming out this year, which 
it looks fantastic. It looks like they're, again, creating a very ambitious sci-fi world that we're all going to have to jump into and and figure out with them as they give us the story. I'm very excited about it. It could be a big, ambitious mess. It could be the next Matrix. Who knows? All I know is it looks fantastic. Yeah, I, I'm I'm optimistic about Jupiter Ascending, I'm, as I am generally optimistic about their original universes. And I think that gets back to this world-building skill that I think they have, yeah. um, that they, they do very well. And something else that it seems like they're kind of sticking with with uh, Jupiter Ascending, I was reading about some of the stunt work, and they actually, as opposed to um, doing some CG stunts and stuff, they actually had the actors, uh, it was, I think it was Channing Tatum and uh, uh, Mila Kunis, when he's wearing his little rocket shoes, um, they had them on a wire uh, dangling off the back of a truck. <laughs> they were filming them as, like going around corners and stuff just to get the movements and stuff with his shoes and everything <laughs> and in order to actually make it real and not have to CG all of it. And I was like, okay, so they're going back to doing some real stunt work. Yeah, and that's that kind great. Of, it excited me and made me feel like, yeah, these are people who understand maybe they've learned from some of their past films that it's that tangible feeling that they had in this first Matrix film that, that made it work so well. That makes me excited to watch the commentary. Of that movie <laughs> that hasn't been finished yet. That's right. That's right. Uh, other uh, uh, key um, uh, uh, well, production Bill, assets you want to yeah, talk about? Yeah, Bill Pope did the cinematography, I think. Yes, uh, indeed. Uh, you know, he's he's effective. He does good stuff. He's worked, uh, you know, uh, he did some Sam Raimi stuff early on. Worked with these guys quite a bit. Um, he's going to be doing Ant-Man. He did The World's End. Uh, Scott Pilgrim. So uh, he, he, he does Cosmos. Oh my goodness! Have you been watching Cosmos at all? I haven't. I oh, haven't. Andy, it is. Uh, it's it's gorgeous. Yeah. It's a, I, talk about an ambitious it's on, mess. It's yeah, on Hulu. It's on, well, I don't have Hulu. I have to wait till it's on Netflix. Uh, I know. It's it is great, and and um, I I just. Um, I'm fascinated by it uh, only because of the money that they are putting into creating the visuals for this thing. I mean, it, it is, uh, it's beautiful, but, uh, to your point, uh, you know, he has a bill Pope. He's got quite a, a list of accomplishments and a lot of great films. And, and one, you know, when we talk about the sort of ambition of the, of the cinematography, uh, you know, he did team America world police, uh, talk about a challenging shoot. Oh yeah, um, from uh, from our friends. So a, a film that you know was designed to um, not take out the artifice, right? They 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 wanted to make sure they kept in all the artifice as much as possible. Exactly, and and I think executed well. But judging by the you know everything I've read about there, the Trey Parker and Matt Stone and and Bill Pope, there they all said this was great thing to do once, and we're never gonna, <laughs> we're never going to do any of this again. It was that hard. Yeah. Um, so, fascinating. Well, but he, he certainly knows how to do effects films. I mean, yes, he's been he doing effects films. For a very long time, yeah, very yeah. long time. So uh, yeah, he he his stuff looks great. Don Davis's music, I think, um, is part of the reason the world works so well. I think his music is as much a part of the Matrix trilogy 
um, as the filmmaking style and the performances. There's something about the music in these films that just feels like it comes from this world. I could not agree more. I really, I, I absolutely, and I think it's Don Davis is, uh, particularly in this film, is kind of an unsung hero. Um, you know, I think is, I think that it is, it makes the place. Yeah. It has a very interesting electronic vibe that sometimes it almost feels like it's that sort of score that becomes the sound effects. It's like, am I listening to the music or is these, are these sound effects of the world? And that, I, I, I love it when, when music kind of can play that, you know? Right, right. So, so he does a great job. The, uh, I, I mean, really, like the whole production team, I think the, uh, the production design uh, is just stunning in this film going kind of kind of the darker uh, uh greenish look yeah. in the matrix world and then kind of the bluer a little more organic look in the quote-unquote real world uh owen patterson did that and i think he uh, did an amazing job with the production design yes uh that w- that's an interesting comment uh, you know i i find myself thinking about it a lot because everything is really it, it's mostly green Right, the experience is mostly green, and it gets blue and downright white in the the later movies. Um, but I find it funny that the when you look at the posters of the three movies side by side, the first mm-hmm. one is purple, um, and the other two are are green. It's like they couldn't figure out the color scheme. I, that's one I couldn't figure out what that what they're going for. Yeah, they did kind of make a purpley yeah color on that first one. Who knows? Who yeah, knows what they know. were thinking there? That's they were, the they big were mystery. Everything else we've out. got figured out, but that's the big <laughs> mystery. Why the purple poster? Um, yeah. And, uh, okay, so uh, who else? Anybody else on your list? Um, I think that's about it. We talked about John Gaeta and the uh, visual effects, I think, mm-hmm. uh, just uh, really just kind of mind-blowing all through this film. Um, and, you know, I think paired with the... Um, uh, um, the production design and the overall feel. I, I do give a lot of credit to uh, Kim Barrett, the costume designer on this film, because I think the costumes, again, feel as much a part of the world as uh, as just the world itself. I mean, the way that uh, Neo looks and Trinity looks and Morpheus looks, particularly when they're in the Matrix, I mean, I think that defined this whole uh, notion of that kind of cyberpunk vibe for a very long time. They just had that slick, just kick-ass look, and it it made everybody kind of want to be that badass, you know? I mean, look at Equilibrium, which came, which came out four years later. They, It's like they patterned everything about the way that those those characters dressed in that film, and even the, the effects in that film, right after this, right straight out of the playbook on this film. Boy, that's a that that's funny. That's a great point. I I found that movie totally unforgettable or totally forgettable. <laughs> uh, I remember I remember enjoying it, but I don't remember anything about about it. So it's one that I'd be interested to go back and revisit and see if I found it enjoyable anymore. That was wasn't wasn't that Christian Bale? Yeah, it was. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the costumes, they, they really, it, that's what, one of the things that, that's what you remember. I mean, that's what makes this, this makes these characters iconic. Um, and, and I find, I, I agree with you in the matrix. I think they're, they're sort of the most fun, you know, particularly when you look at some of the contrasts in the background, right? Because you, you know, 
kind of trinities in the black leather cat suit and and uh, neo's got the duster and and uh you know morpheus has the the clip on on his uh, sunglasses and you know, all of his thing and then you have like switch who is the only one in white yeah right uh belinda mcclory playing switch which i i thought was a, a great choice and um, uh and and cypher and is just you know he's practically street clothes it's like he couldn't quite commit and you knew from the start that he wasn't uh, that that he was going to be just because he couldn't commit to the clothes right right um fascinating uh and and then we meet the oracle who you know is dressed completely matronly right Uh, you know where's cookies baking cookies (laughs) uh hugo weaving there is something about Hugo Weaving. You know, he he said that uh, he kind of, he, when he was trying to find the voice for Agent Smith, he kind of patterned it off of uh, 50s, that whole 50s newsreader style. And I think it works really well. Kind of the depth his voice goes to and the, the, the pace with which he speaks. I just love hearing Hugo Weaving just say anything as Agent Smith. He is so enjoyable through all three films, really. I mean, he's just, he's a pleasure. He really jumped into uh, just this part 110%. And I just, I, I just, I, I just love everything about him because he's just like is, he's like one of those bad guys that you just love to hate because he's just, there's something about that, the way that, you know, the way you smell and just you know, the way that he yeah. plays it up. I, I think he really latched onto the character and found a great place to take him. Oh, he really did. And, you know, when they're interrogating Neo or interrogating uh, Thomas Anderson uh, and in the sequence where they erase his mouth, mm-hmm. uh, I, I that is you know of all the crazy stuff that happens in this film that's probably the most haunting for me uh you know that's the the idea that they can erase his ability to communicate so effortlessly mm-hmm. uh and the way he plays that sequence i think is fantastic um the these iconic you know not just lines but phrasings of specific words that stick with you mr anderson you know i mean i i think that's just brilliant um uh, and, and easily, you know, one of the most memorable performances in the in the trilogy. Wasn't it like recently, like some company used him as Agent Smith in their ads? Like it was like General Motors or I can't remember who it was, but it just felt so weird. It's like, gosh, do you want to use Agent Smith in your ads? It feels a little backwards. Yeah, it <laughs> I was, mean, it's uh, a great it, character, but it was uh, GE. For, GE, for their okay, connected yeah. hospitals. Oh, okay, yeah, but uh, I don't yeah. know. It seemed like uh, something that would backfire. Yeah, no, I you you probably don't pick the villain when you want to <laughs> when you want to do the hospital. Uh, just saying. Uh, I, I don't know. I I got a great line of Chianti. I was going to get uh, Hannibal Lecter to come in and sell it for me. What do you think, Anthony Hopkins? <laughs> That may be too touch on the nose with, uh, <laughs> you know, with the, since they've got the show right now, Hannibal. That's right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't know, I don't, I, I don't get it. But anyway, um, he is still on the air. This uh, was Hugo Weaving's first trilogy, right? Yes, and and first I think two. he was on. He he is on track. I think 
oh, there was somebody who figured this out, and I, I think it wasn't Hugo Weaving who won, uh, but who could do the the uh, three uh, of the big trilogies. He did three. But I know somebody else beat him to it. Oh, really? Yeah, and that, that's the that's the part that, that got trumped. I'm going to have to find that. Um because it it was a huge surprise to me. Because, of course, Hugo Weaving has The Matrix. He's in all three of The Matrix movies. Uh, and he did uh, Lord of the Rings, all three of those. Mm-hmm. And now The Hobbit, right? Well, well, actually, that will be the fourth one. That will be the fourth Transformers one. also. Oh, yeah. See, I'd already forgotten that. So The Hobbit trilogy, uh, well, was he in... Uh, the first it, one? I, I can't remember. He's in the first one. I can't remember if he was in the second one. Yeah, you're right. Maybe not. Yeah, I can't remember. But um, Ian McKellen is in uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and uh, the X-Men yeah. films. Yeah. So, and, and if they have a, if this, this current round turns into another trilogy, then he would have two, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, and two X-Men. So, uh, so he would have four... So I don't know. I mean, those two seem to be competing neck and neck, though. I, I'm curious if there's somebody else that you're thinking yeah, of. Yeah, there is somebody else that I'm thinking of, and it's it's going to make me um, crazy. Um, That's not good. B- yes, it's it's possible. Um, uh, yeah, well, we're going to we're going to I'm going to figure this out and post it to Facebook. Excellent. Uh, yeah. Because now yep. I'm, I'm getting sucked down the rabbit hole here. <laughs> <laughs> take the blue pill. Take the blue pill. Uh, okay. Uh, who else? So, who else uh, do you want to Lord, talk about? Lawrence Fishburne is uh, always just awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I really just love Carrie Ann Moss. I mean, it's, it's hard to not love Carrie Ann Moss ever because she's either badass or just super cool. Yeah, she's she's uh, reasonably awesome throughout this film, and uh, uh, really, uh, I'm just saying all of these guys, Keanu too, uh, they they look great physically, right? They just yep. look tight. Yep. Uh, and uh, I I <laughs> props to them as the the as a you know somebody trying to figure out how to be able to get up out of bed in the morning when I'm 80. Uh. <laughs> now, now here's, here's something to think about you yeah. on this. What would you say with Will Smith playing the role of Neo? <laughs> uh, because he was offered it and he turned it down so he could make wild, wild West. <laughs> 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 oh, that's bad call. That was just oh, a bad call. Oh man. Yep. Well, you know, everybody's gotta live with a couple of big regrets. Yeah, yeah. I guess Nicholas Cage turned it down. Uh Brad Pitt and Val Kilmer uh turned it down. And uh Johnny Depp uh, turned it or Johnny Depp, I think they, they offered it to Keanu Reeves before Johnny Depp, even though Johnny Depp was the Wachowski's first choice. Wow. That also strikes me as weird because, and maybe it's just in, you know, looking back at the film, I just have a hard time seeing anybody play this except Keanu Reeves. He is, I think, the perfect person to play Neo. I I really enjoy him in this role. And I feel like he, 
has has the right presence for this kind of person who's lost in this world and finds the answers when he uh, escapes down the rabbit hole, so to speak. Well, that's the that's uh, the truth. You know, he's he is it it, it he's a believable dumb guy. In that first <laughs> section. <laughs> oh man, uh, Joe Pantoliano is always fun to watch. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I think he is, uh, I, I like him. Talk about a grounding effect on this film. I mean, he is, he is, I think, one of the most entertaining. Um, uh, I, maybe coming off of having seen him, ha- having had seen him recently in Bound, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I just thought he was absolutely terrific in Bound, and, and to see him in this film was just a such a pleasant surprise. Um but but I find every I, I find what he brings to this film like there's no veil in in front of him when I'm watching Keanu I I sort of feel like there's a there's like a fog between me and Keanu Reeves and <laughs> and with Pantoliano I just feel like he's right there in the room with me every time I look at him yeah he's great he he definitely feels like he's got a presence and it's great that he and Carrie Ann Moss both um, got to team up again in uh, memento the very next year right right outstanding yeah with Uh, another aussie yes but not hugo yes the other the other aussie the the, the other (laughs) aussie that that no i don't want to go there all right uh okay carry on moss yeah uh, i think yeah i think that's about it i mean anyone else that you want to talk about uh no I I don't think so um no there really isn't <laughs> but I'm just going down the list because this is not one of those films like there this is not one of those films where I watch it and I think wow the that obscure actor behind the scenes has really gone places do you know what I mean like there's yeah this is not one of those movies um it's definitely one where going into the second and third one which I think was four years later yeah. Um, shot back to back, they definitely started casting some bigger people to fill a lot of those other uh, those other shoes. Right, right. Mm-hmm. For good uh, and bad, I think for good and bad. Generally, a uh, uh, solid uh, flick did fairly well in the uh, box office. Would you say? It, yeah, it did fairly well for itself. This movie, it came out like I said, March thirty first, nineteen ninety nine, the year of many, many, many great films. Um, it cost $65 million to make. They had a really hefty uh, uh, budget to uh, for prints and advertising on this, $33 million. So all told, $98 million, and when you adjust for inflation, that's almost a, was $137 million about. So they had a pretty good size budget. Um, not the biggest budget that we've seen. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade adjusted had a $400 million budget. So, it, you know, it still was kind of considered a big budget film. But like I said, you know, these were second time filmmakers. The studio is still a little unsure. So they didn't give them all of the money they needed. Uh, the movie made domestically, uh, let's see, what did it make? $172 million and, uh, uh, Internationally, almost uh, 200 and, 200, $293 million. So all told, it uh, adjusted internationally. It made about 400 uh, No, sorry, about... Uh, uh, now that's it, not adjusted. It made 650 
million dollars adjusted for inflation. So it made a pretty penny. Well, it's no frozen. It's you're right. It certainly <laughs> isn't. It certainly isn't. Yeah. Yeah, adjusted profit per finished minute, uh three point seven million dollars. Well, that's not bad. Not too shabby. Just saying. Didn't didn't crack our top ten though. It came in at number twelve. Number twelve. Missed it by that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is it's an interesting film to to talk about now that I you know as I start thinking about going into our flick charting because uh, I wonder specifically if we hit the matrix against films like you know it'd be easy to to put it against films like Strange Days you know the other sort of jacking in film right mm-hmm. uh, but against Dark City I'd pick the Matrix see I'm not sure. All right, let's do it. it, it let's it's say, tricky. It, yeah. You're right. It is tricky trying to figure it out. But I, I, I don't know. I just, I, there's something really watchable about The Matrix. And Dark City, there's something that's a little less watchable, even though I, I find it really original. Okay. But anyway, let's jump in. All and right, see. let's do it. So uh, we're going to do Flickchart. Uh, you should go there. You should go to flickchart.com. And when you get there, you should uh, look for the next reel. And then you should like us and friend us and, and uh, just get generally close to us over there. Uh, because that's where you're going to find our list of our stack ranked list of our favorite films that we've talked about on this show. And uh, if you head over to thenextreel.com and you click on the little extras menu, you can jump straight to our top 100, our golden ticket list, and uh, see where let's see where the Matrix uh, falls. Let's see the Matrix or Gattaca. Interesting little sci-fi pairing, yeah, right? but I would I would go with the Matrix. Yeah, I'd go with the Matrix. The Matrix. Or the outlaw Joseph Wales. Mm. It's a good film, but I'd go The Matrix. Really? Uh-huh. I'm finding this. Uh, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll go with The Matrix. The Matrix or The Sting? The Sting. Hmm. I'm a little torn on that one. I feel like I would go with The Matrix. Hands down. No contest, Redford Newman. Please, I don't know, man. It's a great movie. Don't get me wrong, but the it, the Matrix is I don't know. It's it, it's just it, I still find my mind getting blown. I know you're just not finding your mind getting blown uh, this latest time, but uh, oh, the Matrix is something original, really, uh, really unique. It it did something great with sci-fi. It it did it did conceptually, but I you know when I compare it to a movie like The Sting, I'm comparing it to The People, and you know there is no one uh, in The Matrix that that has that sort of that has on display that human connection on screen like Newman and Redford and Robert Shaw, and I mean it's just it, it is such a wonderful human package. Of conspiracy and comedy, and and I I deeply love it. Would you put it on over the Matrix? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I wouldn't, but I you know, I I'm not are, saying I don't we, love it. Do I, we do we need to rock paper scissors? I could do that. We, we might have to because yeah. yeah. I'm willing to take that. Okay. Right. <laughs> One, two, three. Rock scissors. 
Uh. <laughs> I even gave it. Oh, man, you totally ruined that one. <laughs> there must you, be a delay. I swear there's a, there's a delay. You stink. You could, oh, I said it like a second before you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> no, you did not. It was right at the same time. Are you kidding? I, there is a delay. I guess there is. You're killing me here. <laughs> All, right, All right, what's next? Oh, see, now, this is, this, is, this is the one that always trips us up. The Matrix or All the President's Men? All the President's Men. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I, I would go The Matrix, but I will give you All the President's Men. <sighs> I know. I thank know. The, well, thank you. Yes, I, I'm a giver, Pete. I'm a giver. The Matrix or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I would pick The Matrix. And I would pick <laughs> Eternal Sunshine. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Talk about trippy, unique science fiction movies. Yes. And, uh, yeah, okay. I, I, I would... Uh, I tend to get find myself getting super depressed when I watch Eternal Sunshine, <laughs> which is really the only reason, because you could make the case that it also has the the, the wonderful character bits uh, that uh, I love so much about The Sting and All the Presence Men in Eternal Sunshine. We get to know those people uh, better. So I, by all rights, I should naturally pick Eternal Sunshine, and yet I still do not. No, that's fine. I'll go with The Matrix for you. I'll give it. <laughs> All right, since we're horse trading. <laughs> the Matrix or the Hurt Locker? I would do the Matrix. Yeah, I'll give you the Matrix. And let's see, the Matrix or Forrest Gump? Oh. <laughs> All right. What's it going to be, Tom? <laughs> I know. That's a hard one. That's really hard because I love Forrest Gump. I'm going to do the Matrix. The Matrix is uh, pretty. I'm going to go to the Matrix too, believe it or not. All right, there we are. Well, look at that. Number nine. Cracking wow, the top cracking 10. the top 10. Yeah, yeah. But that was hard one. That was hard for me. It was, it was definitely, uh, it was a, a strong fight. Well, I mean, I don't want to do that. It, just, it was an internal battle. <laughs> it was an internal battle on wire work. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. Hey, good film. Uh, I this I think that that feels about right to me. I mean, it it feels like this film is it was um, revolutionary in so many areas and eye opening in so many areas and mind blowing in so many areas. And even though I have some challenges with it on this more recent viewing, I think it's a absolutely. Uh, it, it's a, a pivotal film in in this sort of modern era of filmmaking. If we end up doing uh, Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions uh, next year or at some time in the future, um, and you end up rewatching the Matrix just to kind of freshen your memory before you watch the other two and we talk about the other two, mm -hmm. I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on it then when you may not be thinking about it quite as critically, but just like looking at it as a as a film to enjoy. See yeah. if it uh, changes your opinion of it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. Hey, uh, speaking of really easy films to watch, mm -hmm. uh, what are we doing next week? Well, 
we are, yeah, we're starting a whole new series, which is going to be a fun one. We're actually jumping, talking about great film years. We're going to 1981, and we're going to talk about, uh, we've got, uh, uh, I believe, eight films slotted for 1981. What a year, huh? There Am I a, right? There are a lot of really good films. Uh, we are starting with, are we going to tell people? Is that what the thing is? Or, or you I direct them, no, I think we direct them over to Letterboxd, where they can look at uh, the films on our watch list. Well, that's what, uh, I mean, I'm, I agree. But yes, tell them. Well, that's what I was just going to say. We can tell them next week at least, right? Let's tell them right now. Das Boot. Yes. Now, which version are you watching? I'm going to watch the director's cut, the yeah. four-hour. I think that's the way to go. Yeah, I know that. Uh, I believe that Wolfgang Peterson says that that's the version that he feels is the one most true to his vision. Because there's the TV version that's a whole bunch of, you know, episodes. Then there was the theater, the original theatrical version. Then there's this director's cut, which uh, that's the one I'm going to watch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is a this. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about this film. I find this film. I'm just going to say it, exceptional. It is. It really is. And it's it's a powerful film. Yeah. Yeah. Very very rarely are films made on uh where you're kind of on the side of the Nazis and you're rooting for them. <laughs> <laughs> that is that's really true. Yeah. That is absolutely true. Love this film. Can't wait to talk about this film next week. Das Boot. Wolfgang Peterson. Jawohl. Yeah, Hey, good talk. I gotta go to bed. You go to bed. I'm going to go jack in and go hang out in the Matrix for a few hours. Andy. Pete. <laughs> Dang it. This is one of those things where I was ready to do the toss, and all of the Matrix quotes came back to my head at the same time. And it was just going to come out. <laughs> Follow the white wake up, Andy Rabbit. What is it? Blue pill. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Okay, we're going to play a little game, Pete. I'm going to name a series from season three, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Oh, you and your games. All right, first up, drama of the Brothers Cohen. Okay, that's super easy because the Cohen brothers so rarely do adaptations. It's no country for old men. Okay, how about rom-com? Okay, let's see. Not Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, about a boy. Yep, one more. Hmm. Uh, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist? There it is, you got it. 
We have covered lots of great movies that started as books, and most of those are on Audible. Books like Forrest Gump, Apollo 13, Being There, or The Day of the Locust. The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and City of God. So many great movies from so many great sources. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but it takes a lot of time. We have dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they are so annoying and they have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things wherever they see fit. We listened when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.